Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, October 7th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as the CDC clarifies the airborne dangers of the coronavirus, a state leader in healthcare continues the push to mask up. Then, a new investigative report reveals a disproportionate number of cases at for-profit long-term care facilities. Plus, after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, a look at the pandemic-era state fair. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is now acknowledging the coronavirus can be spread by tiny airborne droplets with the potential to linger in the air for hours and reach further than six feet. This comes two weeks after it removed similar guidance from its website. The information could be critical for Mississippi, where Governor Tate Reeves allowed the statewide mask mandate to expire last week. Dr. Luann Woodward is vice chancellor of the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She tells our Desiree Frazier after a summer of buy-in. Residents are reaching a point of COVID fatigue that could cause concerns. I think as a state, we have gotten to the point this fall where there is fatigue in hearing about COVID and thinking about COVID, and people are so ready to resume something that feels like normal life. So I think as a citizen group in Mississippi, we are we are tired of it and <laughs> we wish it would go away. And, and my caution to that is um, we, we just have to stay the course. It's not gone away yet. In fact, just in the last couple of days um, across the state, we're seeing a little bit of an uptake, an uptick in some of the hospitalized patient numbers. So, you know, I think we have shown that as a state, we can manage our behavior and we can um, make a difference in what this pandemic looks like for us here in Mississippi. And, And my words of encouragement would be we have to stay the course. We We cannot let up at this point. Would you like the mask mandate 
reinstituted because the governor did end it. Do you want to see that brought back? I think we should continue with the mask mandate. That is my opinion. Um, I understand that the governor has a lot of other opinions that he has to weigh and a lot of other forces that are at play here. Um, so, so I don't want to sound critical of him. I do not envy him being in the position to make these decisions. But from my own personal standpoint and what I would like to see, speaking from the healthcare side of it, I would like to see us continue um, the statewide mass mandate. And I am very pleased that a number of mayors across the state have decided for their own city that they would continue the mass mandate. And if you had your druthers, how long would you like to see that carried out? There's no firm date that I can tell you. I don't think there's anything magical about any given date in the future. But I do think we could get to a point where we feel that the the spread has decreased, that we are um, – we, that we are in a place where we can manage COVID and flu. So as much as I don't like wearing a mask when I'm out doing all the things that I want to do, going to get groceries or whatnot, it, I feel like right now it is, it's the thing that we should do. The CDC uh, came out yesterday and talked about airborne transmission. Mm-hmm, it has mm-hmm. said that there are aerosol particles that linger in the air that can lead to infection, even if you're six feet apart. Your thoughts on this information? So I, I, I think most of us in the healthcare community are not surprised by that finding. Um, that has been something that we have felt to be most likely felt to be very probable. And so there's not a big surprise from the healthcare community that the CDC has come out with this um, opinion at this point. So I think what that does, though, that tells us that as we are getting into cooler temperatures and people, more people will be inside, people will be inside more and more people will be inside. And as we are, going back to school and trying to go back to church and doing the things that we want to do, we have to be extra careful, particularly indoors, when it might be difficult everywhere you go indoors to have that full six feet apart and realize that as we are getting closer to each other and and, and being closer to each other in more confined spaces, that that that's even more reason why it is important to to wear the mask and to be extra careful. Halloween is at the end of the month. <laughs> so we we've got another event that folks like to get together and have events for children and, and, and Halloween parties and such. What are you recommending people do this year? You know, at least the good thing about Halloween is most people do have on masks, (laughs) even though they might be, you know, part of the costume, at least they do have on masks. And I I think that if people can manage to celebrate Halloween in some sort of way that doesn't put large crowds of people together in close proximity, that, that, you know, with care and with a and, and with a little bit of moderation, I do think, especially the kids, can still, um, you know, have have a good Halloween. But wear a mask, you know, hand hygiene, 
particularly if the kids are trying to go house to house and you don't know um, hand hygiene, wear a mask, keep a distance, um, all those things would be extra important. Okay. One thing that I want to ask you about, though, I'm, I'm reading where there um, are patients with COVID-19 who are having confusion. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. a common symptom? So with COVID-19, what we have, what we are finding as we go, um, I, I've said this in a couple of different venues, it, it is an odd virus that's causing a lot of odd symptoms. It's a new one. So every day we are learning new things. And what we are seeing as we go is particularly once people recover from the acute episode of the virus and they are in the recovery phase and they're back home, um, they do have a, a and a very high number of residual symptoms. A lot of them are respiratory in nature, where they just don't feel like they've gotten their full, you know, their full ability back to breathe comfortably and to, you know, to be over that. Some of them are related to blood clots. Some of them are things like, I can't get my energy back. You know, it's just taken me a long time to feel like myself. I can't get my energy back. And we have seen some neurological symptoms where people do um, feel confused or they feel like they're not thinking clearly. They report kind of feeling like they're in a fog and they just can't. It's taking people longer than we would have thought back eight months ago to really get over the effects of this virus. Dr. Luann Woodward is Vice Chancellor of the University of Mississippi Medical Center. They're talking with our Desiree Frazier. The Mississippi Department of Health reported 975 new cases of COVID-19 yesterday. That's the highest daily total since August 19th. Coming up, a new investigative report reveals a disproportionate number of cases at for-profit long-term care facilities. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A new analysis by the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting shows twice as many residents caught COVID-19 at Mississippi's for-profit nursing homes and nearly three times more died there. The study, done in partnership with the Pulitzer Center, is part of the center's Poverty and the Pandemic series. MCIR founder Jerry Mitchell shares more about the report. We hired some data journalists, uh, Jamie Fraser and uh, Christine DeLeon, to help us out with the data. And we, we to be honest, we, we didn't know what we'd find. So we there wasn't a particular uh, thought one way or the other uh, for for-profit and non-profit homes. We just had them look at the data, and that's what they found. But t- tell our listeners what they found because it's it's rather well, striking. So there are twice as many residents uh, caught COVID nineteen inside Mississippi's for profit 
nursing homes compared to nonprofit or government-run nursing homes. And nearly three times more died there. And that, that's a pretty staggering figure. I mean, to me, this is, I mean, think about this. The average number of residents inside these for-profit homes that caught COVID is four in 10, or it's approaching almost half. I mean, that's, that's a staggering number. And, and, and one possible reason is the fact that you've got 80% or four out of five of, of all of Mississippi's nursing homes had already been cited for infection control problems before COVID ever hit. So there, we've obviously got some issues and problems that predate COVID. And I think COVID is obviously showing, hey, we, you know, we need to do about, you know, something about these issues. Certainly there has to be the struggle that someone in a long-term care facility is more vulnerable to mm-hmm. catching the disease because they have nowhere to go. Yeah, and then you're not, you don't have, you're not masking up the employees. And certainly early on, they weren't, the supplies weren't there for masks, for uh, people working in nursing homes. Um, there was just a, there, there was obviously just not the care taken to make sure um, that this virus doesn't spread. I mean, it just it just spread like wildfire. I mean, through these nursing homes, and and we knew this in advance of these nursing homes uh, getting hit by the disease that they were going to be the most vulnerable. I mean, that was pretty early known information. You mentioned that some of these nursing homes, if not most, had been cited previously, and I just want to read one thing because I was just chilled sure. by this which you include in your investigation story. This is regarding a nursing home in Brookhaven. Since 2017, the 58-bed nursing home has been cited for nine deficiencies that included aides failing to wash or sanitize hands or use gloves. Medicare graded the home above average. Yeah, yeah. That's chilling to hear that, that people don't wash their hands, which is pretty much the most basic of hygienic Practices. I know. Basic hygiene, isn't it? And they're and, rated above average. What does that make you think that's happening in a nursing home that's below average? Yeah, I know. And and some of the ones below average, you're you're hearing even worse things. Of, you know, they're not you know uh, sanitizing instruments. You know, like they're drawing blood, and they're not sanitizing the instrument in between. They're using it on another somebody else. It's like. This is just basic health care, you know what I mean? I mean, this is like pretty darn basic. Uh, and so we've got some real problems here. And, uh, and the fact that, again, the fact that there's such a difference between the for-profits and non-profits would suggest, obviously, the bigger problem is with the, uh, the for-profits. And that is, can be attributed to the bottom line. It's for-profit. They have to make money. So are they... Well, you- yeah, and look at the, you presume that, but look at the data on it, which shows that uh, in terms of staffing, just, just take staffing alone, you've got almost twice the staffing at the nonprofit homes that you do at the for-profit, or, or for-profit, you got half the staffing. They've got half the staff that a, for-profit, that a nonprofit has. Well, that's, 
I mean, that's, that's staggering. That's huge. And it makes a huge effect. And another thing uh, is the number of registered nurses being, um, you know, being available in terms of hours that they're available in a day and things like that. And those numbers are, are widely vary as well between the for-profits and the non-profits. So it's something I think we really need to take a hard look at. Uh, you know, our health officials and our state officials need, need to do that because obviously many of our loved ones are in these homes and um, we want to make sure they, they, they get, you know, good care. I mean, you don't just want them, you know, hold up and, you know, let to die. Yeah, and people need to read this for sure. I mean, I, I also see um, many nursing homes are poorly designed, packing up to four residents in a room where they share one bathroom. This yeah. is a long-term yeah. care facility, four people in a room. Yeah, that's what they, that's what happens in some of these homes. They, uh, they're just, you know, to be frank, they're just kind of appear to be warehousing people as opposed to, you know, taking, taking really good care of people. And that's unfortunate. And you don't want that situation. You don't want people just packed in like sardines and, and just treated however. Uh, and, uh, so we've, and that's how COVID spread. I mean, you, you, you're not, if you're not taking steps to isolate people, to socially distance people, to do different things like that, I mean, you're going to, COVID is going to spread like wildfire. The story is poverty and the pandemic. Jerry Mitchell is the founder of the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. The story was done in partnership with the Pulitzer Center. Where can people see this, Jerry? Oh, they can see it on our website, which is MississippiCIR.org. So please check it out. There's a lot of a lot of information people need to know, especially if you have a loved one or friend uh, in a nursing home. I think it's a story you're going to want to read. Jerry Mitchell, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, a look at the pandemic era state fair. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. The first question that we get when someone comes in is, how is the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library in Mississippi? Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We have every letter Grant ever wrote and every letter ever written to him. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app, Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. I have a question about the flu shot. I'm in my 60s, and I was speaking with an acquaintance yesterday, and she said that she's not getting it this year because a friend of hers, daughter, had a bad reaction and is still getting over some of the side effects that she suffered from getting the flu shot last year. Is, is that possible? Very, very rare. We're talking about less than one in hundreds of thousands of individuals who would get a flu vaccine may have a reaction to it. They can be things that are transient things that sort of come and go, or it can be things that persist. You know, certainly if there's an allergy to different components of the vaccine, a lot of people just can't take it. But you'll find that with anything. You know, it's a, it's exactly the same kind of thing 
in medicine, anything that you get, even if you're taking over-the-counter medications or herbal medications, you can have a serious allergic reaction or adverse reaction from those kinds of things. Although those are very, very rare in vaccines, you can have that. should point out that if you look at everybody who develops the flu every year, there's actually more cases with the flu of having adverse reactions such as immunologic responses, partial paralysis, um, even death. There's a lot more risk of getting that from getting the flu than it is the vaccination of the flu. So most people will not have any problems with the flu vaccine. There's much more chance of having problems getting the flu. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The 161st Mississippi State Fair is opening today and is expected to generate millions of dollars in revenue for the state. Nearly 500,000 people typically attend the Mississippi State Fair. And despite the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, officials say attendance could remain high. Agriculture Commissioner Andy Gibson tells our Kobe Vance the fair can occur safely and serves as an opportunity to showcase the newly completed trademark. We're actually setting up an agriculture expo here in the trademark during the Mississippi State Fair. Uh, fairgoers can access the new trademark and look around from the from the midway. They'll see an antique tractor show. We're going to have a genuine Mississippi store set up where they can buy Mississippi products, uh, agriculture and uh, products crafted right here in Mississippi. They're going to be able to see the agriculture expo that's going to feature all the, the, the key industries of agriculture in our state and career opportunities. So it's all happening as part of the fair starting October 7th. And um, you know, what, could you go over the numbers again for how impactful the state fair is on the state's economy? $80 million of direct impact, not counting the indirect uh, aspect of the jobs and the, the turnover of these dollars in the economy, as well as the fact that so many people come. This is the state's largest event. We'll have over half a million people come here during the fair in a regular year. I'm expecting a good attendance this year, even during this uh, COVID season, because it is an outdoor, exclusively outdoor event, except for a, a couple of little featured uh, uh, walk-through items here in the trademark. So people have plenty of room to social distance, as you can see, and I'm excited to do it. Uh, you tweeted recently that the, because the governor changed some regula- regulations around mask wearing and things like that, things you might be reassessing. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, we put together our safe fair plan during the time of the governor's prior executive order, and we made the assumption, and I think we should have, to, to be conservative, that that order would remain in place through, this, through the date of the fair. But since it has been changed, we're looking at that, and there are a lot of details in there for different types of events. We're trying to see where that applies to the state fair. But the, the, the great thing is it's not going to impact us in a negative way at all. If anything, it's going to help us because it is a purely outdoor event. We, do, we will maintain our maximum number of people on the fairgrounds just as an effort to be safe. We think we can manage that, and uh, we're going to be watching for that, encouraging people not to bunch up but to keep their distance. And uh, all the rides will continue to be sanitized, et cetera, but uh, it's going to make it a lot easier for us to have the state fair than it would have been before. And uh, on a fr- Facebook Live press, press conference the other day, Dr. Dobbs mentioned that there might be drones flying around. Are you all still going to go forward with that? 
We are. We have uh, law enforcement has drones that will be watching the fairgrounds from a security standpoint. And one of the things we'll be watching for is to making sure people are not clumping up, you know, getting into everybody's face together. And if we see something like that, we'll send some officers in and politely ask people to, you know, keep social distancing. We just got a social distance out here because uh, in the open air, that's the key to separating and to stopping the transmission of this virus. Uh, as far as lines go, you know, those can typically get pretty long. Or, uh, those will be social distance as and well. And we've rearranged the fairgrounds midway so people, the lines will not be wrapping into the midway. They'll be staying inside. And we have plenty of six-foot distance marked for every line. Yeah. Is there anything else that stands out about the state fair um, that, as far as health measures go or even just like security measures that you want to tell Mississippians about? Um, well, I would say that uh, the state fair is an event that, you know, we've never canceled in the history of the state. It's not going to be canceled this year. Our livestock show community is going to be here. Young people are going to be showing animals, and they want to do that. They're desperate to do that, and this whole fair is built around agriculture. So I tell folks, agriculture has never shut down, and we're not going to start today, all right? Andy Gibson is the Commissioner of Agriculture and Commerce. The high volume of attendance does generate concerns that the fair could serve as a super spreader event. The state reported a nearly two-month high of 975 new cases of COVID-19 yesterday. Dr. Luann Woodward says it only takes a few infected people for high transmission to occur. It certainly is possible. It absolutely is. If you had some people there that were infected that don't have masks on, that are on rides, and, you know, anytime somebody's on a ride, they're they're yelling and they're, you know, kind of squealing, and whether it's out of fear or joy or whatever, you know, just having fun, that's the kind of activity that that can um, expel a lot of virus particles, and it absolutely could be a super spreader event. I hope that it is not, but it is possible. The fair opens tonight and continues through the 18th. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.